This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, looking tonight at verses 17 through 22. Hebrews 11, 17 through 22. It's page 1008 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we come to the word tonight, we pray uh, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to hear what you have to say from us from your word. Father, we pray that you would teach us and feed us and instruct us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Often when we think of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, what we think of, first and foremost, is the fact that we will go to heaven. Now, there is, that's certainly true, and we thank, uh, thank God for that, but there is so much to salvation, both in terms of that future, but also what happens now. We don't want to reduce our relationship to God in Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, to mere fire insurance, uh, so to speak. Uh, that's, that's a very reduced view, uh, that salvation simply means I go to heaven. In fact, Christ's death was not merely to redeem me, it was to redeem this creation. And as the scriptures speak of, of, of on the last day, the Lord uh, cleansing this creation with fire and, 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 and bringing in a renewed, restored, redeemed uh, heavens and earth, and new heavens and earth, new earth. But it's also true. Uh, that as much as salvation does speak to how I live today and does speak to the grand scope of what God is doing in the world, something that's so big uh, that spans over all of human history, it's also true, when you get right down to it, that the gospel is about victory in the face of death. Uh, in fact, uh, some of you perhaps have been through uh, evangelism explosion training, or if you've not, maybe you're familiar with the uh, the diagnostic questions. Do you know for certain if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven? Of course, the second question, which is like unto it, uh, is if you were to die tonight, when you stand before the Lord, you would say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? 
Salvation is far, far bigger than just my individual salvation. And yet when we look death in the eye, or when we contemplate our own death, whether imminent or, as far as we know, far away, far off in the future, the fact is uh, it's the gospel of Christ that enables to look at death and not blink. Now, as we've been studying Hebrews chapter 11, we've seen how faith has caused these uh, these various figures from the Old Testament to live in certain ways, to do certain things. And each of them illustrates uh, what verse 1 says about faith. What is faith? Well, faith is, he says, the assurance of things hoped for. What we hope for, what we look for, the assurance that we will eventually come into those things. And the conviction of things not seen. We don't see them with physical eyes. We see them with the eyes of faith. We see what is not seen by human eyes. We see what other people do not see because God has spoken to us of those things and promised to us those things. And he says, for by this kind of faith, by being to count on and act on and live by what is not seen but what is promised, he says, the people of old received their commendation. Now, certainly, uh, whether they're the people of old and were commended for their faith, maybe we're the people of new, uh, we also want to be commended for our faith, um, certainly by the Lord himself uh, and perhaps by our children and our grandchildren. Uh, we may not get written up in Scripture. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee it, the canon being closed. Uh, but we certainly hope to leave a record of faith and faithfulness behind us. Well, as we've gone through, we've looked last time at Abraham, uh, all the way from verse 8 to, to verse 16, and our passage tonight continues with Abraham, but there's a little different slant, a little different take on each of these for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, these figures from Genesis, uh, these patriarchs of the Old Testament, specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and then he includes Joseph, and their faith essentially in the face of death. Their faith in the face of death. Does death cut off God's promises? Does death render null the promises of God? If we live and think of living the Christian life only in terms of the horizon of this life, we may find discouragement. But as God's people, as those who live by the conviction of things not seen, we recognize that our horizon does not end when we pass from this world, either for us or for God's continuing work in the world. And so as we look at these these patriarch figures, plus Joseph, who technically wasn't one of the the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, we we see their, their faith in the face of death, that each one of them is tested with with death. Does my death end the promise, or in Abraham's case, the death of his son. So let's look at that. In each of the, these, they are living by faith in the face of death. The first one, of course, is Abraham, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, and Genesis 22 begins by saying, God tested Abraham. Right up front. This is a test uh, with Abraham. We were told that. Uh, offered up Isaac. Now you know the story. The Lord calls Abraham to, to take his son, 
uh, as the writer to the Hebrews says, his only son, and take him to the place where the Lord would show him and there offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham does that. Now, if you're thinking, still awake, this late hour of the day, you're like, wait a minute. Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. The word there is the same word that's used uh, to speak of Jesus, the only begotten son. Uh, but it's the word that's used here uh, of Isaac. Well, what does he mean? Well, only son is, is a way of rendering that word. Uh, Jesus is referred to in such translations as, as God's one and only son. Well, what about Isaac? Why is he the only son? Well, the word that's used there has to do with, with being one or only, as the ESV renders it, but sort of the idea of unique, a one of a kind. Uh, Abraham also had Ishmael. He would have other children, too. But the point is, Isaac was that unique son. Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac is the son that, humanly speaking, never should have been, but was given to them in a miraculous way when they were past the age of childbearing, uh, and then well past when God initially made the promise, then he blesses them with Isaac. Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the, the one through whom the line of God's grace would continue. So in that sense, he is Abraham's unique son. He was the, the fulfillment of God's promises. And uh, he was the one through whom the promises would be fulfilled. Um, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so when the Lord comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, go and sacrifice Isaac, you can imagine the difficulty that might cause. Certainly the emotional difficulty that might cause. You know, we can think of, and many have written or spoken about Abraham's anguish. You know, the Bible never says the first thing about any anguish from Abraham at all. Now, I'm sure that was not easy for Abraham. We sort of have to read between the lines, though, because the Bible is not interested in Abraham's emotional response to what God told him to do. What is important is that Abraham did it, that he did what the Lord called him to do. In fact, it says he offered up Isaac. Why? Because he, he was fully prepared to go through with what the Lord told him to do. That's why I can say he offered him up. Except for God preventing him at the last second, he would have done it. And in Abraham's heart, he was obeying the Lord. And he was going to do what the Lord had told him to do. Now, this poses another problem for Abraham, not just the assumed emotional difficulty of offering up this beloved son, uh, but it also poses a problem for Abraham in terms of the fact that God had promised, as the writer says, that it was through Isaac that your offspring would be named. God has made these magnificent promises to Abraham. You know, vast numbers of descendants. Abraham, look at the stars of the sky. Count them if you can. Look at the sand on the seashore. So shall your descendants be. And it's through Isaac that this would be reckoned. It was Isaac who was the son of the promise. And yet here God says, okay, Abraham, kill him. It's a problem. But, you know, Abraham needs something. It was a problem, but it wasn't his problem. 
It was God's problem. Notice what he says, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. You see, Abraham's problem was, or his, his concern with what he was about to do was not, well, what's going to happen when Isaac is gone? It's, well, somehow God is going to restore Isaac because it's through Isaac that these promises will be fulfilled. Now, is that just gratuitous? Is that just saying, well, you know, Abraham, yeah, I believe God could raise him. No. Remember, when Abraham travels with his servants, they go to the place where he's going to sacrifice him, and he and Isaac then leave the servants behind, Isaac carrying the wood, and they're about to go and uh, go to the place of sacrifice. What does, I, what does Abraham say to the servants? He says to them, wait here until we come back to you. Now, Abraham knew exactly what he was going to do, but he also told the servants, wait here until Isaac and I come back to you. Now, was that just deception? Of course, they would have expected the two of them to come back. I don't think so. I mean, Abraham knew what he was about to do. I don't think he was just trying to deceive them. Uh, He knew that God had promised through Isaac his descendants would, would come. And so Abraham knew somehow if he was to slay Isaac, that the Lord could somehow restore him. Why not? Isaac, again, should never have existed in the first place. If God could bring him into existence the way he did, certainly he could restore life to his already existing dead body. So for Abraham, this problem was not his. The problem was God's. And we need to take that mindset. Uh, All too often, we tend to take to ourselves what belongs to God. God, you've made promises. I'm trusting in you. I'm looking to you. The fulfillment of those, the difficulty of that, the problem of that is is yours, Lord, not mine. I'm trusting in you. I'm looking to you. And he goes on to say, in verse 19, he Abraham considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. If that's what God had to do to fulfill his promises through Isaac, that's what the Lord would do. Abraham was willing to slay him with that in mind. But notice what the writer of the Hebrews says. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The word there is uh, in, a, in, a, in a figure, in a, in a, in a picture, in a, in a, literally the, the word parable. Uh, he received him back. Figuratively speaking, it was as if he received him back because Isaac was good as dead. Uh, Abraham didn't kill him. The only reason he didn't is because God stopped him. Uh, the same God who could have raised Isaac up anyway. So figuratively speaking, it was as though Isaac had come back from the dead. Now, writers have, have, uh, uh, have written a lot on that, Bible scholars, seeing Isaac here as a type of Christ uh, with his with his uh, death and his resurrection, his almost death and his being spared, a figurative death and resurrection. Um Some have even gone so far as to say, well, Isaac was carrying the wood for the sacrifice, the fire and so forth, just like Jesus carried the wood of the cross. I'm not so sure that's really what he's getting at. Uh, A lot of people have written. In fact, some have even gone gone so far as to say, well, 
The ram represented Christ's human nature because it died, but Isaac represented his deity, which didn't die. That, you know, that I think is pressing it a bit far. If anything is the Christ figure there, it's the ram that died, so Isaac and the people of Israel in him would live. Uh, the ram died as the substitute, the one who died in the place of Isaac, uh, at that point the embodiment of, of the future people of God, of, of Israel. Uh, but it was kind of a, a resurrection. Figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. So Abraham's confronting death was not at this point his own death. It was the death of his son and faith to recognize that God was greater than death. He was going to obey God, unlike Noah, even when it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, trusting that God would be able to raise up Isaac and raise up offspring through Isaac. So Abraham's faith in the face of death has to do with that of his son and the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, we move on then to Isaac in verse 20. Uh, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Um, A whole lot there in one short verse. If you go back and read in Genesis, uh, you know how Jacob managed to get his birthright from Esau, trading uh, his birthright for some stew uh, for Esau. His name means red. Apparently the stew was red, too. Um, but and then how Jacob managed to get the blessing of the firstborn from his father uh, at his mother's uh, instigation and uh, dressing up, putting on some animal fur so he'd be kind of hairy like Esau was and, and uh, uh, tricking Isaac out of the, the blessing. And you'll know how, of course, uh, after he pronounces the blessing and he s- seems to be, uh, Isaac seems to be a little... Suspicious, you know, the 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 the, the voice is that of Jacob. Um, Esau comes in immediately after having taken some game. He comes in and uh, you know finds out what happened, and and Isaac says, "No, I've given him the blessing, and he will have the blessing." And he pronounces a blessing on on uh, Esau as well, but it's not the blessing, the larger blessing of the firstborn, which though Jacob took it by deception. Isaac basically says it stays on him. I've given him that blessing. Um, however, Isaac in the blessing recognizes a future that, that lies ahead. Isaac, for as long as, as long as he lived, actually only gets about two and a half chapters in Genesis. Uh, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about him, but uh, he does pronounce that promise, which, by the way, uh, begins a pattern here or continues a pattern of the firstborn who normally would have the place of honor, normally would receive the blessing, uh, taking second place to a younger child. Uh, you see that, and we'll see that uh, again through here. And even though there it took place under less than ideal circumstances, the blessing on Jacob remains. Well, speaking, I mean, uh, yeah, on Jacob. Speaking of Jacob, we continue with verse uh, 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Again, just one verse here that covers a lot of history in Genesis. You think of uh, what happened with Joseph and the famine in the land, and the, the, the particularly severe in the land of Canaan, and 
Jacob sending his sons down to Egypt and all that went on with that. Um, well, then we come, if you'll turn, you turn back to uh, Genesis 48, just to, to look at some of what happens here, because it um, really starts to, to branch out some here. Uh, late in the book of Genesis, Genesis uh, chapter 48, uh, Joseph has told your, your father is ill, and so he goes to him with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. There's no tribe of Joseph in Israel. The two tribes uh, are named for his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the firstborn. Ephraim was secondborn. And so Jacob is told, your son Joseph has come to you. And in verse 4, Jacob repeats to Joseph the words the Lord had spoken to him. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And so he repeats that that promise of the Lord given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, repeats it now to Joseph, and he prepares to bless not Joseph, but Joseph's sons. And we see this in verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Um, Basically gives to him the blessing of the firstborn through Joseph, not to Reuben, the oldest, but through Joseph to his sons. And notice already he mentions Ephraim before Manasseh. Manasseh is the firstborn. Uh, And so then he gives the blessings uh, to them. Uh, verse uh, 10, the eyes of Israel, that is Jacob, were dim with age, so he couldn't see them. Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Remember, they thought he was, thought he was dead. And Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, Toward Israel's left hand, his father Jacob, Israel, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. Because his father, as Joseph expected, would put his right hand on the firstborn, Manasseh, and his left hand on the secondborn, Ephraim. That's what Joseph was preparing for. And again, continuing in verse 13, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim to his left side, Israel, Jacob's left side, who was the younger, and his left hand crossing over onto the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph with his hands on his sons, and says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, catch this, verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God made you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So there's that, that switch, that reversal, the younger in the place of the older, as with Jacob and then Esau, now with uh, Ephraim over Manasseh. And if you know the later history, Ephraim grew to be one of the major tribes in Israel. In fact, sometimes Israel, northern kingdom, was referred to as Ephraim, which means fruitful. Uh, it's based on the Hebrew word for for fruit. And so it says he worshipped over the staff, uh, the head of his staff. And by the way, Jacob instructed Joseph to bury him, not in Egypt, but back in Canaan, in Machpelah, where Abraham was buried, Abraham and Sarah, that he would be buried there in the promised land. And then that brings us in the last place to Joseph, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. It's staggering. Of all that you read, and you do read a lot about Joseph in the book of Genesis, uh, of, of his, of his uh, travails from his brothers and being sold into slavery and his being falsely accused and being imprisoned, and finally, through interpretation of dreams, uh, coming to Pharaoh's attention and rising to power in Egypt. None of that is mentioned, although that took faith uh, as well to wait on the Lord and trust in the Lord through all of that. But the writer of the Hebrews is interested in just one thing. What Joseph did at his death. And as he says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. Joseph, again, is looking beyond his own life, looking what would come after his death, and he recognized and states that the Lord is going to bring Israel up out of Egypt. He saw that, and he requested that his bones, when they left, be taken with them. And they did. The Passover leaving Egypt, all that we looked at in the book of Exodus as we studied that. They were careful to take Joseph's embalmed body with them when they left, and it was with them for 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And we read in Scripture how they went to the Promised Land. Finally, under Joshua, they took Joseph with them uh, into the Promised Land. Each of these is, is the concern of the writer of the Hebrews. Each of these died in faith or faced death in faith. In the case, case of Abraham uh, with his son, that God's promises would not be stopped by the death of Isaac. That Isaac could bless Jacob and Esau because he was seeing that God was at work and what would happen in the future. Or as he says here, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph because He recognized that God's purposes would be moving forward. Or with Joseph at the end of his life, uh, making provisions to be carried with his people when they left Egypt. None of these received the promise. All of them died seeing it from afar. And yet they were able to face death 
recognizing that God's purposes would continue, that that would not cut off what God had promised. How about you? When you look death in the eye, I hope it's no time soon for any of you or for me, but in the Lord's timing, do you recognize that God's promises are good even after your death? That to die in the Lord is to be with the Lord and that uh, his purposes will continue here on earth until that day when Christ returns and we will be united with him, united with his people, united with the saints of God here on the earth uh, to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. In each of these cases, the writer to Hebrew is, Hebrews is interested in the fact that each of these patriarchs lived by faith and faced death by faith, recognizing that death will not end the work and the purposes of God. You see, they believed that God will fulfill his word, that God will keep his promise, and not even death can end that. We need to face life, and we need to face death, standing on those same promises, wielding by God's grace in our heart that same faith of the patriarchs, face to faith to face death. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would have that kind of faith, that we would look toward the future, certainly, Lord, toward our own soul being with you upon our death, looking, Lord, in faith for the future of our children, uh, that they would walk with you, and for the future of your church in this world. Uh, Father, not even death itself can stop your purposes. And certainly, Lord, those things that, humanly speaking, look impossible are not difficult at all for you, our almighty God. Father, increase our faith. Indeed, give us the same faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.